Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and as I record this episode, we are now merely days away from finding out the results of the voting that the Hall of Fame's new Modern Baseball Era Committee will be having this weekend to determine who, if any, among a list of 10 men will be selected for the class of 2018 in the Baseball Hall of Fame. At the same time, we have the writers voting underway for the 2018 ballot, including holdovers like Trevor Hoffman and Vlad Guerrero, newcomers such as Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey. And with all this Hall of Fame action happening, there's no better guess for us to roll up our sleeves and assess the Hall of Fame prospects of these men than the man that we welcome to the show today. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, a contributing baseball writer for SI.com and author of the terrific new book, The Cooperstown Casebook, Jay Jaffe. Jay, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Uh, gearing up for the, uh, uh, for basically, the, it's Hall of Fame season to me already here. I'm gearing up for the release of the uh, 2018 Baseball Writers Association ballot, having uh, uh, just waded through the uh, Modern Baseball Era Committee ballot uh, for SI.com. Uh, looking forward to talking about this stuff. Well, let's talk about the 2018 ballot. Uh, Chipper Jones headlines the, the newcomers, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, w- I think he's probably the uh, uh, the top candidate on the ballot, both by uh, traditional reckoning and, and uh, the, the advanced statistics as well. And we've got some holdovers. I know Trevor Hoffman and Vlad Guerrero were both knocking on the door last year, and I, I suppose that given the momentum that they have, are, are we considering those guys as foregone conclusions at this point? You know, I think it's it's going to be... Uh, I, I would characterize this as a, as a very top-heavy ballot. Um, you know, normally when a guy gets 70%, uh, it's virtually automatic. I think it's 17 out of 18 guys uh, since... 19, since the voters returning, returned to annual balloting in 1966, 17 out of 18 guys with at least 70% uh, got in the next year. Uh, I don't recall if we've seen a case where we had two of these guys coming back in the same year. Uh, and the fact that you've got that, plus you've got not just Chipper Jones, but also Jim Tomey with over 600 home runs uh, and some other popular rising candidates. I don't know that, that it's a sure thing that uh, uh, that everybody gets in. I mean, at first glance, it's tempting to say, boy, we could have a class of four people here. Um, but, uh, it, you know, reality is much more complex than that usually. Hoffman, relief pitcher. Obviously, relief pitchers do not do well by the kind of metrics that we're going to get into uh, that you sort of use and imply your trade, and one of them even has your name on it. How do you feel about a guy like Trevor Hoffman, who uh, 601 career saves, and yet if we look at the 2018 ballot by war or by jaws, he is well far down the list in the territory of guys like Carlos Lee. Is Trevor Hoffman yeah, a Hall of Famer? How do you, how do you, how do you uh, well, assess that? Well, put it this way. I think it's, it, you know, when I've evaluated relief pitchers, I think it's always been, it's always been the, one of the harder parts of, of, uh, 
the analysis because I think there's there's a, 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 a there are good reasons not to go hog wild with electing relievers. Um, you know, the smaller workloads, uh, the fact that the job, despite you know everything that people say about oh, you know, the last three outs are the toughest. Uh, these guys generally have it easy, a whole lot easier than uh, than their fellow pitchers and, and uh, position players. Um, I have looked at uh, relief pitchers in a number of ways, not just uh, through my own uh, JAWS system, that's the Jaffe Wins Above Replacement uh, score system, which uses uh, war to compare each player uh, on the ballot to the players who are at, at his position already in the Hall of Fame, uh, but also... Uh, looking at alternative methodologies, including uh, win probability added. Uh, for Hoffman, he's a guy who doesn't really do great by my war system. He's somewhere around the 20th ranked reliever of all time, and that's just because he didn't throw a lot of innings. Um, you know, he was good, very good for you know for what he did. But when you compare him even to relievers uh, of yesteryear, you know, who had heavier workloads, it doesn't. He doesn't really stand out. But when you look at win probability, which accounts for, uh, say, the tightness of a ball game when the when he enters, like he was protecting a lot of one-run leads, uh, you know, where there wasn't a lot of margin for error. When you look at that, uh, he's actually, I think, the second all-time uh, in win probability uh, behind only Mariano Rivera, the guy who broke his saves record. Mariano has about twice the value. Uh, you know, in terms of the innings and run prevention and, and things like that, but uh, but you know, in, in in a more traditional war system, uh, but by this, uh, they're a whole lot closer. And by on, on that, just I, I think I'm okay with Trevor Hoffman getting in. I'm not sure I would use one of my ten spots on the ballot if if it were uh, if I had an actual ballot to fill out. I'm still a, a couple years away from getting my own, uh, but. Uh, you know, I think he's probably the next reliever to go in, and then after that, we're going to get Mariano Rivera next year, and then uh, we can close the door uh, for that avenue for a while. So, before we really dive in uh, with both feet, there's going to be a, probably a fair amount of uh, discussion of war and jaws that's going to be sprinkled through the conversation. So, for my listeners who are maybe not entirely conversant in what war is and what war seeks to accomplish, and if they're not familiar in war, they or maybe they are familiar in war and they don't know about jaws, which is more likely, could you kind of tell us what war attempts to, to measure, what jaws attempts to measure, and why you believe that those metrics are so important when you're considering a, a player's merit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when people traditionally have made, you know, made uh, arguments uh, for or against Hall of Famers, they often uh, wind up comparing uh, players across eras in ways that don't account for, um, you know, the, the differences in scoring levels and, and you know, and, and uh, uh, changes in the rules and things like that. It's tough to compare, say, a guy who had 500 home runs in the so-called steroid era uh, to a guy who hit uh, 500 home runs, uh, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s or whatever. Uh, likewise, for pitchers, it's tough to compare uh, the ones who came, who you know, who who have uh, come up in the 80s and 90s and 2000s uh, with the ones who were flourishing in the dead ball era. Uh, I think you want a, a means of equalizing that. And when I started doing this back in 2004, uh, that was my goal at the time uh, was to take. Uh, Hall of Fame uh, evaluations to the next level by using uh, a more comprehensive system. Uh, what wins above replacement does is it's an attempt to estimate uh, the value of each player in in runs and then in wins uh, 
above uh, uh, that of an, a- an average bench player uh, using uh, estimates of his offense and his defense and his base running, uh, not just paying lip service to the things that have traditionally been tougher to measure, uh, but uh, you know, drilling down and trying to get a more accurate estimate. Um, the uh, uh, the idea is that uh, you know not only are we, we measuring those things, but we're also adjusting for ballpark, uh, for league scoring levels, and things like that, so we can more easily compare guys from high scoring eras to guys from low scoring eras, and, and kind of level the playing field. Uh, likewise, with pitchers, uh, we're all, we're adjusting for the caliber of defense behind them. We're adjusting for the ones who did uh, more work by striking out more batters. Um, you know, it's just a, a means of, of doing the best we can to get more accurate estimates of value. Um, because without that, you end up arguing, ah, oh, well, this guy had 500 doubles, and this guy had 400 doubles, but 300 home runs. Which is which is more valuable? And I think you want, you know, you you want to not get too attached to the round number of milestones and the trivial stuff and uh, the smokescreen stuff and the lip service stuff. Uh, this is a means of equalizing it all and and of using. Um, those measures, uh, career wins above replacement, not, and what I also do is I also use a player's peak, uh, his best seven seasons, uh, my definition, to uh, account for the players who had shorter careers but were more dominant. I'm thinking of guys like Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, Ralph Kiner, versus the guys who stuck around forever. So what I use besides a career uh, wins above replacement total is what I call his peak total. Uh, that's his best seven seasons. It's on baseball references, War 7. Um, Sometimes you see it on MLB Network uh, uh, used uh, in that same manner. Um, but I take the average of a career score and a peak score to get the Jaws uh, figure. Uh, and that is a basically, it's a, it's a, it's a first-cut ranking system uh, you know, that you can use to compare any, play, any Hall of Fame candidate to the players at his position who are already in. So I can say, you know, Tim Raines had a Jaws of 56.8, the average Hall of Fame left fielder is at 54.3. Uh, Reigns is an above-average candidate. Uh, he's a guy who, who I think the voters should be uh, recognizing because the idea basically in all of this is to focus on uh, the candidates who at least maintain the standards of the Hall of Fame, if not slightly improve them, rather than further erode them, uh, You know, as has been done so often with uh, inferior selections in the past. Well, let's talk about that. We'll come back around to the 2018 ballot because I'm interested in getting your take uh, not only on the players that we've discussed, but uh, some others that are that are on the ballot uh, as well returning. But I, I want to ask you about this modern baseball era committee that is going to be considering 10 candidates, nine players uh, from the 1970s and 80s, and Marvin Miller as well, who was the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Let us know, for, for those of us who haven't been following uh, intently, what exactly has happened here? Because the Veterans Committee is no more, and it's been replaced, as I understand it, with various eras. Sure, to catch you up here, okay, from 1953 to 2001, sometimes voting every year, sometimes voting every other year, uh, a small committee... Uh, generally of, uh, I think it was a, somewhere between 11 and 18 people would vote on, you know, maybe 10 candidates a year, uh, and this was called the Veterans Committee. There were players who had aged off of, off of the uh, writer's ballot, uh, and uh, also managers, executives, and umpires, and pioneers. Uh, that was the only means that those other guys could be considered by. Uh, 
but for the players, it was the, kind of the picked-over set, the, the leftovers. Um, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with this, you know, the fact that uh, uh, many inferior players were, you know, it, inferior being relative to the average Hall of Famer elected by the writers, not just, you know, the most garbage-ass Hall of Famer, I mean, garbage-ass players of their day. Uh, good players, just not great players, were recognized by this route, uh, sometimes in too much frequency. And so there was eventually enough outcry that the system was changed. Uh, originally, it was changed to allow all of the living Hall of Famers, uh, plus the Frick and Spink Award winners, that's the broadcasters and writers, uh, to cast a ballot. Uh, this happened in 2003, 2005, 2007, uh, and I think 2008, and it, it, it didn't go anywhere. Two, no, 03, 05, and 07, it didn't go anywhere. Nobody got elected by this. Nobody was good enough for the country club of the, of the actual Hall of Famers. Uh, so they went back to smaller committees, uh, and after the 2010 election, um, they changed it to what's called the ERA committees. Uh, this was three committees uh, voting on a triennial cycle, uh, one uh, from the beginning of the game up to uh, 1947, uh, one from 1947 to 1972, uh, and one from 1973 onwards. Uh, that They went through that cycle twice, and then they changed it again uh, to what's now uh, four different committees that instead of rotating, rotating uh, on a, uh, a quadrennial cycle, uh, the more recent ones are voted on uh, more frequently with the modern baseball one and the today's game one. Uh, that's modern baseball covers uh, players whose uh, players or executives, etc., uh, whose primary contributions happened during the 1970 to 1987 window. Uh, the today's game uh, period is from 87 onward or 88 onward, I guess. Um, uh, those are voting f- both uh, four times in a 10-year span. Uh, modern baseball this year. Uh, two years from now, and then in 2023 and 2025. Uh, the idea is that the older, the older uh, eras have been more thoroughly picked over. Um, the big problem when you look at all this is that the, uh, these small committees haven't elected a living ex-player since 2001, since the system was changed away from the small panels, uh, and only three players uh, in all have been elected by this, these processes, uh, all of them deceased. Uh, the last, the, the last one of which uh, uh, was Deacon White, uh, who <laughs> goes all the way back to 1871, uh, the first hit in in uh, National Association history. So that's why they have changed it, uh, uh, the process so many times. I think is you know to try to uh, break the logjam there because there are a lot of candidates. Uh, I think that you know maybe there's not slam dunk ones, but I think the Hall would like to see one or two uh, get in now and then. Certainly, I, and I know that I would as a as a fan. And as I look at the modern baseball era ballot, I I think even if you're a very very a small hall sort of person, there are clearly at least one, possibly two, and if you're a bigger hall guy, even more than two that you could make a strong case for on this uh, modern baseball era ballot. And I, I, I want to rattle through the names really quickly and just kind of get your uh, perspective on the on the entire pot. But the folks that are up for consideration right now are Jack Morris, Don Mattingly, Louis Tiant, Alan Trammell, Tommy John, Steve Garvey, Dale Murphy, Dave Parker, Ted Simmons, 
and uh, as I mentioned earlier, Marvin Miller. Obviously, everybody on that list was a formidable uh, talent during their time. Where do you come down on, on this? I think I have a pretty good idea that you'll agree with me that Alan Trammell belongs in the Hall of Fame first and foremost, probably from that list. Yeah, Trammell is is one of the guys that stands out on, on that. I have him as I think the, the, about the twelfth best shortstop uh, according to Jaws, um, and just about everybody above him and, uh, is in the Hall of Fame with one or two exceptions. Um, but he's better than the average Hall of Fame shortstop, basically. Uh, a guy who just did not get a ton of recognition in Detroit, uh, in part because it was Detroit and not, say, New York or Boston or L.A., uh, and in part because there were other great shortstops that are already in the Hall of Fame playing during his era, namely Cal Ripken Jr. and Robin Yount, both of whom got to 3,000 hits, uh, both of whom had uh, multiple MVP awards as well. Uh, Trammell kind of got lost in there, uh, got robbed uh, of the... Uh, one time he should have won an MVP award in 1987. It went to George Bell, who had uh, 140-something uh, runs batted in and uh, uh, just uh, obscured the, the broader contributions of Trammell. But, yeah, he's a guy who I think absolutely should be in. Um, uh, there's really only one other player from among that group that I feel strongly uh, should be in, and that's Ted Simmons, uh, who I have as about a top-12 catcher of all time. Uh, great switch-hitting catcher. Uh, again, uh, came from a period that... Uh, we've already got a few Hall of Famers, Johnny Bench, Gary Carter, Carlton Fisk. Um, he was kind of lost in the National League behind Bench and Carter, uh, who did, you know overlapped in terms of their playing careers, but not so much in terms of their dominance. Uh, you know, Simmons was, was there. He was the best uh, uh, hitter of that group, uh, at least after Bench faded. Uh, but... You know, there was. I think his, his defense was much maligned in his era, and you know, now that we have uh, advanced statistics to, to more fully evaluate it, we can see that you know the defensive stuff didn't cost nearly as much as it was made out to be, uh, and his bat was so much better than the average catcher that he really had a lot of value. Uh, so those are the two that stand out to me. Uh, there's a whole bunch of guys on that ballot who won MVP awards: uh, Don Mattingly, Steve Garvey, Dave Parker. Um, Murphy won a couple. Dale, and Dale Murphy, I think, uh, the, the former MVPs. All those guys had, you know, nice, uh, you know, several nice years. Uh, when I look at them, I, I don't see uh, enough value beyond their big years to really make them strong candidates. I think, you know, if you were going to pick one of them, I would say maybe Murphy. Um, but even then, I mean, this is a guy whose career basically fell off the table at age 32, uh, and he was done by age 37, having just really struggled to play, uh, to stay on the field the last few years. But, um, you know, I don't think any of those guys uh, is a really strong candidate. And I think, the, you know, the, the, the writers felt similarly. I mean, you look at the voting percentages these guys received, uh, I think Garvey was the only one that even to get 40%. Uh, at any on any ballot, and most of those guys were kind of stuck in the low twenties uh, or even the, the teens uh, for the duration of their candidacy. So, um, you know, I don't think that they're strong candidates by the traditional methodologies. Looking at them in, in the light of advanced statistics, I don't see them as being particularly strong candidates either. Uh, the one candidate who I do think has the best chance of breaking through uh, isn't Trammell uh, or. Oh no! Don't say it! Don't say it, Jay. Yeah. Jay I, no, yeah. don't say it, Jay. You're gonna, you're gonna say it. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say it. I have to say it. I have to talk about it. It's, it's Jack Morris. Oh, uh, Jack. Who is the the most polarizing? You know, perhaps the most polarizing candidate of the uh, 16 or so years that I've been covering 
this process using JAWS. Um, unlike these other guys, Morris actually did get close to election. He got a high of 67.7% uh, in his 13th year on the ballot, but then he receded uh, in his last two years because a whole wave of more controversial candidates hit the ballot, guys like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, uh, and he was a little bit lost in the shuffle. Um, you know, Jack Morris was a very good and durable pitcher for a long time, uh, won 254 games, and had some big postseason success with the Tigers uh, and then with the Twins, including that uh, that Game 7, 10-inning shutout. He's gotten a lot of mileage out of it. Has anybody gotten more mileage yeah. out of one game? Bill, Ma- I, I would say Bill Mazeroski, yeah. um, who, who, you know, who hit the walk-off home run in 1960. And it was the election of Mazeroski in 2001 that so incensed Ted Williams uh, that the hall- that was what started the Hall of Fame uh, messing with the Veterans Committee stuff. Uh, Williams was just so irate, and, you know, and, and he was a guy whose voice uh, really you could not avoid because he would tell you exactly what he thought. <laughs> uh, so... You know, I think Morris has, has gotten a lot of mileage out of that game. Uh, his supporters like to point to his durability, and, and uh, uh, they see him as kind of a throwback to this, this era that was, uh, uh, you know, more pristine because pitchers completed what they started. We didn't care about advanced statistics, blah, 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 and he just cared about wins. And, you know, the problem is is that Morris just really wasn't that good at preventing runs, even the most basic uh, run prevention stats. He would have the highest ERA of any starter in the hall at 3.90. Uh, once you adjust for the ballparks he was in, he's, you know, right near the bottom there. Just pre- prevented runs at about a 5% better than uh, average clip. Um, you know, there's just a lot of hokum when it comes to, you know, the, the, the claims of what he was worth. I mean, you could look at David Wells, a guy who was on the 2013 ballot, who had uh, an actual ERA that was about a quarter of a run higher than Jack Morris, uh, 414, I think it was, but relative to his league was was about 4% better at preventing runs with an ERA plus of 109 to Morris's 105 and had just about the same amount of uh, postseason success, you know, uh, 10 postseason wins, uh, some big World Series wins, some big moments there. Um, and he went, fell off the ballot going one and done. There's another guy who had, you know, 200 and some odd, I think 250 wins, something around there, around Morris's total. Very similar candidate, except he didn't have the myth of that game seven. You know, and I'm not saying Morris should have fallen off with, with you know, less than 1% of the vote. I'm just saying that, boy, it's, you know, really inflated candid, uh, candidacy. And I think it was a reaction uh, as I've written in the book, uh, you know, a reaction to the ascendance of Burt Blyleben, uh, who really got into the Hall of Fame because uh, the stat heads like myself uh, were able to make a case for him, you know, based on things like ERA plus and strikeout rate and wins above replacement uh, that actually uh, broke through to voters in some way. And pitching to the score has been pretty thoroughly debunked by now. Is it fair to say? I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's conceptually. I think there's the, there may be something to it that that you can't quite capture in the statistics. But everybody who has looked through Morris's career on a granular basis, uh, particularly the late Greg Spira uh, and then Joe Sheehan, uh, who've done the, the by far the most work in that area, uh, there's no systematic means that really tells you uh, what Morris was doing. Uh, this is a guy who took a lot of poundings and, you know, gave up five and six runs a lot. He may have gotten a win out of it, but that doesn't mean he was 
particularly good, it means he had a great offense behind him. And, and in fact, he had a better offense behind him in general uh, over the course of his career than most of the guys who won 300 games uh, who, whose careers he overlapped with guys like uh, uh, Nolan Ryan and Don Sutton and Tom Seaver. Um, uh, you know, there were, there were nine guys from that group, from the, what I call that 70s group, which in your wheelhouse there, um, uh, that, uh, uh, that got 300 wins and that uh, really kind of set the standards because they were just so durable and lasted so long. Uh, Gaylord Perry, Phil Necro, Steve Carlton, you know, these, these were the giants of the day. And uh, uh, Morris didn't, didn't quite measure up to them. Uh, Bly Levin, you know, I, I, at the time people didn't really think he measured up to them, but he really did. And when you, when you look at the advanced stats, and Morris really does not. Um, but I think it's, it's sort of been he's sort of been lumped in with that group. Well, there's a few guys on this list that I have a rooting interest in. You know, Trammell and Murph and and Parker have all been guests on this podcast, and I've had the pleasure of interviewing Steve Garvey and Tommy John at other times, but Trammell's the guy that strikes me uh, among the names that I'm that I'm pulling for as the most likely, perhaps, given what we know now about how he compares so favorably to other shortstops. Do the people on this era committee know that? Should I should I be you know, disappointed when uh, when Tram doesn't I, I, make I, it? I think you sh- I think you need to be braced for it. I you know here's the thing, because this ballot as you know as interesting as it is, the glaring omission is Trammell's double play partner Lou Whitaker, who was every bit as valuable. Uh, really very similar standing in terms of Jaws. Um, uh, seventh highest war of all time at the position, maybe the only the uh, not quite as high a peak, but uh, uh, you know in the same ballpark around the top dozen uh, all time in, you know, among second basemen. He got less than five percent of the vote in his lone ballot appearance in two thousand one. Has yet to get on a veterans committee ballot of any stripe, uh, and the fact that he's not on there, but Trammell is, I think, tells you. You know, I'm not sure that these guys have any idea. Right. Um, who, who, you know, what, what, how to measure that, how to measure that kind of value. Um, and look, this is a, this is a panel that's, you know, eight of the 16 members are going to be Hall of Fame players. Um, you know, it's not somebody who, uh, has been reading Bill James or, uh, baseball prospectus or fan graphs or me. Uh, this is, these are guys who are comparing, uh, you know them to directly to their peers based on their own understanding of the game, which you know is a different perspective. Um, the writers on that committee are are guy, you know, of which there are going to be I think three or four uh, are guys who are probably in their mid sixties. Uh, they didn't have to uh, utilize uh, advanced statistics in their reporting of the game. You know, it's a, it's a, it's maybe a foreign tongue to them too. Uh, and likewise for the executives who will make up the other four spots on the committee. So. Um, in general, the small committees have been notoriously retrograde in terms of who they've focused on. Um, I think you have to be prepared for that possibility here. It's going to take a gen- another generation, I think, to 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 see the impact of uh, uh, the advanced stats. Now, I know I can I know there's at least one guy on that committee uh, who that I've spoken to in the past who's talked about the need to get. Uh, uh, the guys like Bobby Gritch and Lou Whitaker uh, in front of, and Ted Simmons in front of the voters. Um, you know, I can't name names, but you know, I know that I know that those things are being discussed now. But it's just not uh, the lingua franca uh, of that group. And Gritch is another guy who, by 
by war should certainly be um, among the people who are on this ballot. Yeah, Gwich is a guy like Whitaker uh, went one and done. Le- I think you know less than five percent of the vote, and has never gotten any other consideration. Now Simmons was in that camp too, uh, but Simmons has somehow managed to break through. And I think the big difference there is that uh, when you look at the uh, makeup of what's called the Historical Overview Committee, uh, which builds the ballots. Uh, there's a, a St. Louis Post-Dispatch uh, writer and a former Spink Award winner, uh, Rick Hummel, who's, who's uh, generally pretty heavily involved in that. Um, you know, he's got a voice in the room. Uh, this is a guy who, who covered Simmons during his, his uh, uh, peak and can speak up on his behalf. And I just think that, you know, guys like Gritch uh, and Whitaker maybe don't have that voice in the room that's getting them onto those ballots. Well, the voice in the room, I mean, wasn't there a period where the Veterans Committee was just, it was just basically Frankie Frisch's homeboys, right? Yeah, 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 yes, go, yes, you go back to the late 60s and early 70s, and yeah, and there was there was just this period, and I wrote about this in the book at length, this period of rampant cronyism where, uh, you know, Frankie Frisch was a great second baseman, a Fordham graduate, a very smart guy uh, who played for the, the Cardinals and Giants. Uh, and was you know he kind of ruled that committee, uh, and over the course of the five or six elections that he was on the panel for, uh, four of his ex teammates got in, um, and uh, uh, including uh, Bill Terry, who who then joined the committee and uh, kind of continued that legacy. So there are a whole bunch of ex Giants and ex Cardinals uh, that got in from the twenties and thirties, a very high scoring era. Uh, these guys had short careers. Uh, at the time, you know, advanced statistics, nobody nobody had any real uh, understanding of that. It was just like, wow, you know, I played among all these 300 hitters. We've got to, you know, we, we, ha- we don't see those 300 hitters anymore. We've got to get these guys in. And so you had, you know, a bunch of inferior selections, uh, guys like Chick Hafey and, and uh, Hack Wilson, the slugger, who, you know, did at least set a national league record with 58 home runs, but uh, uh, had a very short career and, uh, um, you know, was playing in a very favorable era for offense. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's been a big problem. I studied uh, uh, the Veterans Committee for years and years and years and finally wrote about it in the book, um, you know, just that impact of cronyism. And a lot of times you can trace uh, the sudden breakthroughs of a guy through that means uh, with the presence of a former teammate on the panel. Uh, Bobby Doerr, who just passed away this uh, this past week, uh, was elected the first year that Ted Williams was on the committee, for example. Uh, Williams tried hard to get Dom DiMaggio in, but but, but was unable to. Uh, I'm not saying that Doerr was completely unworthy, um, but, you know, when you've got uh, an advocate like that in the room, it, it certainly helps. Well, that's the that's the argument that some people make is, well, the Hall of Fame is already kind of screwed up beyond recognition because of all these lousy Veterans Committee picks through the years. You know, and then you start getting into these slippery slope arguments where people will say, well, hey, so-and-so was better than this guy who's in the Hall of Fame. But yep. the reality is, is I don't know, what percentage of the guys in the Hall of Fame do you think just by merit could could be <laughs> excused? You know, that's a, that's a really good question, and one I've tried to grapple with over the years. Um, I, I think you, there's probably, you could probably point to, of the, let's just limiting the focus of, to the 200, I think it's 217 uh, major league players, players who were in there for their major league playing, not their managing, not their executive careers, uh, not their Negro Leagues careers, et cetera. There's over 300 players, or there's over 300 men in the Hall, if you include all those. Um, 
there's probably easily 30 or 40 that, that the Hulk could live without. Um, I called my book, uh, uh, the Cooperstown Casebook, who's in the Hall of Fame, who should be in and who should pack their plaques. But I did not actually go so far <laughs> as, to, uh, as to tell you who exactly needed to pack their plaques. The reality is that nobody's getting kicked out of the Hall of Fame. Um, the best we can do is try to make it an institution that's more worthy of our admiration and respect. And that is where the JAWS project you know, began, was to try to at least maintain, if not improve, the standards for the Hall, to define them more clearly. Um, so instead of comparing guys to the lowest common denominator, uh, you're comparing them to the average Hall of Famer, and then you can adjust accordingly. If you want to, you know, if, if uh, uh, not everybody who gets in is is going to be average or better, you know, this is not Lake Wobegon. They can't they can't be filled with children <laughs> who are all who are all above average. Um, you know, somebody's you know, there's there are guys who maybe don't measure up well in my uh, system who I think are thoroughly justifiable Hall of Fame candidates. Obviously, if you're missing time due to military service, you're not going to have the same kind of career numbers. You know, if you were held back by the color line, if you were held back by, uh, you know, death in some cases, um, you know, if your career ended abruptly like that, I, you know, I think you have to make allowances for, th- for things like that. And so by taking the largest, the largest cross-sections of, of just aiming for the average and adjusting mentally, uh, you know, and factoring other things like the postseason and et cetera, et cetera, uh, into it, uh, I think you get a better means of comparing to... Uh, the people who are already in there instead of say singling out like this terrible selection saying well he's better than this guy and that's the worry with Jack Morris is if you induct Jack Morris and people want to make that play that what if game well I can name you know half a dozen guys from Jack Morris's era alone who I would who I would put in the Hall of Fame first which isn't to say they're worthy Hall of Famers but they would deserve a thorough reconsideration if we're just talking about Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Dwight Gooden, Oral Hershiser, David Cohn, Dave Steve, Kevin Apier. Uh, these are guys who were much better at preventing runs. They didn't have the the uh, Game 7 1991 performance, but they had big postseason moments as well, most of them. I mean, you know, think about Oral Hershiser in 1988. What's that worth? You know, right. that's got to be at least worth, worth as much as, as what Jack Morris did in any postseason. You know, the stuff like that. So we could talk, you know, it's a dangerous spot uh, to start aiming for the lowest common denominator uh, and basing Hall of Fame selections on that. All right, let's look at this 2018 uh, writer's ballot that we've got. We've we've mentioned that Hoffman and Vlad Guerrero came very close. Hoffman got 74% last year. Guerrero just a touch under 72. So I think, I think it's probably a winning bet to think that both of those guys are going to go in this year. Then you've got Chipper Jones, who it would seem is, is a great bet, and Jim Tomey, who... Even in this era where the home run has has been devalued, uh, relatively speaking, where everybody's cranking homers, the guy had 612 homers, a pretty sterling reputation as a as a uh, solid citizen, and and then some. So you got those four guys who are looking pretty pretty darn good. Then you're looking at Edgar Martinez, who was third last year with just a shade under 60 percent. And then Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, who obviously kind of fall into a category that is just called Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, uh, at at fifty four percent each. What happens with Edgar, who obviously, as a designated hitter, there's a backlash for a lot of people in in considering him. I think adequately, but you're talking about a guy who had a 
418 on base percentage for his career. Um, he's only got two years left. And at 58.6%, what do you think happens here? Well, I don't think Edgar is going to get in this year. Let's put it that way. Um, I, you know, you, I looked last year uh, at the precedent, or maybe it was two years ago, at the precedence for uh, for what happens in the final two years of a player's candidacy when he's at that level, uh, based on what the path that Tim Raines was heading on. And he was at 55% with two years to go uh, after... Uh, getting screwed over by the uh, the hall, uh, which which shortened his eligibility window from 15 years to 10. The same thing happened to Edgar. He was a little bit uh, uh, not not as far along, uh, but he really took a big leap forward uh, the last couple of years. Uh, got over 50 percent for the first time last year, and he's out now actually a few points ahead of where Reigns was uh, through year eight. Uh, I look at this as a two step climb basically for him. Um, I think if he can get into the high 60s. Uh, he's going to be in really good shape going into year 10. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the David Ortiz retirement tour definitely helped convince some people because, you know, you can compare Ortiz's numbers to Martinez's numbers, and yes, Ortiz has the counting stats, um, you know, the 500-plus home runs, uh, the, the you know, as well as the World Series rings, but you look at the race stats of Edgar Martinez, who was hitting in a much harder environment out in Seattle, um, you know, particularly Safeco Field, uh, and uh, he put up some great numbers as well. And uh, not only that, but Edgar played more than 500 games at third base and was, was at least average, if not a little bit better, uh, according to the metrics we have. Uh, whereas David Ortiz uh, was a first baseman and not a very good one for about one-eighth of his uh, uh, total plate appearances uh, uh, playing time-wise. Um, Edgar measures up very well compared to Ortiz, who I think a lot of people believe is going to be uh, a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, Edgar, in fact... Uh, measures up very well to the average Hall of Fame third baseman, even when you take into account the fact that he spent most of his years at DH and thus takes a huge hit in terms of of war uh, for being a full-time DH. Um, his, his hitting was just that good. His hitting, he's you know, quite possibly one of the top 50 hitters of all time. Um, and third, am, ba- and third base is so underrepresented anyway. And third I mean, base is so underrepresented too, yes. I think that, you know, I'm optimistic uh, about Edgar, if not this year, the next year. I mean, getting back to the, the top heaviness of the ballot, you know, we, we saw four people get in a couple of years ago, uh, but before that it hadn't happened since 1955. Uh, it's difficult to believe we can get uh, another uh, foursome in there this year, but it does seem possible. Um, we're not going to see five, though. Uh, so, I, you know, Edgar or, and, and everybody else, uh, I think it's kind of jockeying for position after this logjam clears, uh, hopefully, you know, with uh, uh, some emphasis on the urgency of the matter uh, when it comes to Edgar, who'd be going into his last year of eligibility. But also, you know, when you think about Bonds and Clemens, those guys broke 50% for the first time, uh, which was the halfway point of their candidacies. You know, I think that they're on track for eventual election. If you look historically, just about everybody who gets to 50% eventually gets to 75%. So there are a lot of guys, I think, who are moving towards election. It's just, you know, it's just going to be uh, slow and steady progress for them, as uh, you know, this year because there's so much uh, uh, up top. Do Clemens and Bonds possibly have a lower ceiling because of the circumstances that surround their candidacies? I think what we saw last year 
that, you know, once Bud Selig, who presided over this era where steroids was uh, allowed to run rampant, you know, got into the game, uh, if he wasn't penalized, if he was deemed as fit for the Hall of Fame, despite his misdeeds, which also included a significant role in the collusion scandal uh, of the 80s, uh, and, and overseeing the, the strike in, in, in 1994, uh, if his misdeeds weren't disqualifying, then I don't know how you can look at Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens and, and, and believe that, that their misdeeds are somehow uh, disqualifying. So, um, you know, I do think that, that it's, it, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight for them, but you also have to take into account the evolution of the electorate. Uh, younger voters coming in are less likely to feel strongly uh, about Bonds and Clemens being locked out of the hall than the older writers that are replacing the ones who've been sunsetted off of the voting rolls because they're now inactive, or uh, the ones who are simply, you know, have, you know, late in their careers and, and kind of dwindling in number because of uh, the things that are happening to our industry. And as you look ahead, 2019, you've got Mariano Rivera, who is, I think, pretty clearly going to go in on the first ballot. 2020, you've got Derek Jeter. 2021 is not a particularly strong group of first-timers. It's highlighted by guys like Tim Hudson, Mark Burley, Tori Hunter. 2022, though, you've got Big Poppy, and then you also have A-Rod on that ballot. Uh, Two people that I want to ask you about here, and then I'd like to get your opinion on some some active players before before we wrap up. But uh, two players I want to ask you about coming up. The first I'm going to ask you about is A-Rod. He goes on the ballot in 2022. Obviously, his case is similar to that of Clemens and Bonds, not not exactly the same. Given the fact that he was suspended as he was, by the time we get to 2022, are we going to kind of be over this? Or is that an obstacle for A-Rod that he won't be able to overcome? That's a good question. I don't think anybody fully knows the answer. Um, when I think about the, the issue of PEDs in the ballot, I tend to uh, draw a line uh, between what happened before uh, there were actual sanctions, you know, penalties and testing uh, came about in 2004. Uh, what happened before that to me is the wild, wild west. You know, there were no, you know, there may have been rules that, that were supposed to prevent it, but there was no means of preventing it. It was like a uh, a stretch of highway uh, with a speed limit posted, but but not a cop in sight, and everybody knew there were no cops in sight. Uh, you could do whatever you wanted. It was like the autobahn. Um, you know, you weren't going to get a ticket. Uh, what's happened after that? You know, when you've got testing, you've at least got a means to you know reasonably identify those players who use performance enhancing drugs and, and take that into account as you will. Um, you know, I think when when you look at Bonds and Clemens, I mean, they, you know, they had their days in court. Uh, there was a lot of you know millions of dollars flushed down the toilet for these show trials that uh, uh, didn't produce a whole lot of lasting value. But they never tested positive uh, in a way that could be penalized uh, by Major League Baseball. I think that's very different from what happened to Alex Rodriguez. No, it wasn't wasn't exactly a positive test, but there was enough evidence to, you know convict him, quote-unquote, uh, of using and to suspend him for a year, something that was unprecedented. I think it's a lot easier to hold that against a, guy, a candidate, uh, a lot more justifiable, justifiable in my mind, than, uh, than to go back to that Wild West era and, and view those infractions in the same way. Uh, I think the interesting one to watch here with regards to A-Rod is going to be Manny Ramirez. Manny got suspended twice, and, we, and he also had the... Uh, 
survey tests, this supposedly anonymous survey test report, uh, at, you know, against his name, uh, and yet he still got somewhere, you know, around 25% of the vote this past year. Um, you know, there a certain faction just does not care uh, about that. They're like, Manny Ramirez is one of the best hitters I ever saw. I'm going to vote for him. I don't really care about the, about the steroid stuff. I think, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who feel the same way about Alex Rodriguez. I don't think it's enough to get him in anytime soon, but I think we'll have a better idea of the size of that faction uh, based on what we see happening to Manny Ramirez, who got suspended not once but twice. The other guy I want to ask you about, and, and obviously very tragic events here recently, is, is Roy Halladay, who uh, is eligible next year. What do you think? I mean, he's a, he's an interesting candidate to begin with, and you, you factor in the tragedy, uh, perhaps people will be giving him an even closer look than they otherwise uh, would have next year on the ballot. Uh, what do you think of uh, Halladay's prospects for the Hall? Well, you know, I already thought that, I, that he was a likely Hall of Famer. Um, you know, he does he he did finish with only uh, 203 wins, and it's been, you know, it, it took more than 20 years to get uh, the Hall of Fame uh, voters past this idea uh, that a, that a starting pitcher had to win 300 or bust uh, from 1991, uh, sorry, 92 until 2014. Only Burt Blylevin got in with less than 300 wins uh, among starters. And then we saw uh, John Smoltz and Pedro Martinez get in the next year. Uh, and so now it's a bit of a different ball game here. And I think that's opened the door for Halliday. Halliday's got a very Pedro-like career in that he didn't even get to 3,000 innings, uh, but he won multiple Cy Young awards. I have him with a, with a peak uh, score that's uh, equivalent to the average Hall of Fame starter. And that's including, you know, all those guys in the dead ball era that were, you know, pitching 300 innings a year. He was a monster. Uh, if you look at just the guys who have debuted in the last, like, 40-some years, he really stands out. Um, you know, this is like the guys, you know, post that so-called 70s group. Uh, he really stands out. So I think a Hall of Fame vote was already justifiable before, you know, the, the, the tragedy that that, uh, that just happened. I think now when you combine that with, you know, the, the sentiment that's, you know, inevitable and not necessarily uh, unwelcome in, in this case, I think it's likely that he gets selected on the first ballot. I might not have thought he, it would be first ballot if he, if he were still with us, but uh, I think those, you know, that perfect storm, for want of a better term, uh, is probably going to carry him over the top. Were there any guys in writing this book that you gained uh, additional appreciation for? And by the same token, were there any guys in, in, in doing the research that you put into this that you realized maybe weren't quite as good as, as maybe you thought when you began the project? You know, I would have to say it almost uniformly goes towards the former end. I, you know, I've been looking at these numbers for, you know, forever. Um, what I had to do, just the, the subtitle of the book, the, you know, the part about who should pack their plaques, was something that, that, that uh, uh, was part of the, part of the project's title uh, before I even had an outline of the book. Go, 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 we're going back 10 years. And when I was able to get away with a lot more snark than I am now, because uh, I was just, you know, lobbing bombs from baseball perspectives rather than writing for, for, for Sports Illustrated. And so I could conduct myself with a lot less decorum than, the, than I do now. I was, I'd never been in a press box or a clubhouse or anything like that. To me, the, uh, the, I think the real, the, the fun thing about the project was that I spent so much time 
pouring over these players' careers that I gained a respect even for the crappiest Hall of Famers. You know, to understand what, you know, the challenge for me was was not to just say, this guy stinks, because he didn't stink. He just isn't a good Hall of Famer. But to appreciate what was it that, that attracted the voters to him. Um, you know, it was these 300 seasons. It was the fact that this guy played through injuries. It was all these things. I gained a certain appreciation for all of them because I spent so much time writing and then rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, trying to get, you know, a concise summary uh, of each player's career. And they almost became like characters to me, you know, characters in a book and whose, you know, dr- dramatic arcs I had, a, I had a vested interest in. You know, I think more than, you know, I, I appreciate that these guys are, are not necessarily all good Hall of Famers, uh, but they all did bring something to baseball history that I think is of interest. Um, one who really stands out to me, though, is like, wow, I really never realized that guy was that good. Uh, it's Harry Heilman, outfielder for the Tigers uh, in, the, uh, in the 20s, who in a, in a seven-year span, I think it was, won four batting titles, uh, four very close races, again, all of them against Hall of Famers, Cobb and Gehrig and Al Simmons and I'm blanking on the other one, but just like in, in two of those four, he won on the last day of the season with like, you know, collecting multiple hits. Man, that guy could fucking hit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. And, and um, he had had strained relationships with Ty Cobb uh, during his Tigers career, but Cobb basically lobbied for him when he was on his deathbed. Uh, uh, Heilman's death. Heilman was dying of cancer. Uh, he was by that point he was a broadcaster for the Tigers, uh, and uh, at the All Star game, Cobb was trying to uh, rally uh, to have an immediate election for him so he could appreciate it while he was still alive. Well, he didn't get that, uh, and Heilman died soon afterwards. But. Uh, he was elected the next year. That was one that really stood out to me as, as just, you know, I just did not know that much about that player. There were a lot of 18, uh, sorry, 19th century guys that I knew almost nothing about, that I had to gain uh, a working knowledge of. Guys like Tim Keefe and Mickey Welch and Old Haas, Old Haas Radborn, I knew a little bit more about him. But the stories of, of you know, these Herculean workloads and things like that, uh, and the, the kind of bare-knuckle conditions of the day, that was fascinating to me to, to you know to to learn a little bit more about and to to focus on and gain uh, a deeper appreciation among players who are not either currently under consideration by the writers or and will eliminate the players that are that are still active certainly or who are uh, on the docket for the for the next few years give me your let's say five players give or take uh, if I could give you executive order powers and you could just say, all right, I'm Jay Jaffe and I am the uh, person who makes this decision today, what five guys would you open the doors for, roll out the carpet and say, you guys go ahead and get on in there. You're richly deserving. Okay, so by, by not current candidates, we're also saying modern baseball era committee candidates, but not the other exactly. committee options. Okay, exactly. so, okay so then... Um, uh, that that would check Marvin Miller, Ted Simmons off, and Alan Tram off the list. But uh, um, so I would go with Dick Allen, uh, Minnie Minoso, Bobby Gritch. Uh, that's three. Let's see here. Uh, quite possibly Lou Whitaker as well. Um, and boy, then it starts to get down there. Um, you know, there there there's. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Thurman Munson is one I'd have to think about as well. 
quite quite possibly here. Uh, Kenny Lofton, actually. Let's go Kenny Lofton. So that's uh, Alan Minoso, Gritch, Whitaker, and Kenny Lofton. Let's let's start with those five. All right, that's pretty solid. You could win a few games with, with those guys in your lineup, I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, Jay Jaffe, it has been a pleasure. The book is the Cooperstown Casebook, Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Who Should Be In, and Who Should Pack Their Plaques. And I've got to say that this is one of the best books that I've read in recent years on baseball or any other subject for that matter. Thank you so much. Just a wonderful book. And, you know, I put it right up there alongside the Bill James stuff uh, in in terms of evaluating players and uh, comparing players to one another. If if you've read the Bill James uh, historical abstracts, then by all means, you you need to go out and buy this book. There's no question. I know that you'll love it. Jay, true pleasure having you on the podcast. And I'd love to have you back on again sometime. Hey, thanks so much. This was great to talk about this stuff. Thanks again to Jay Jaffe. The book is the Cooperstown Casebook. And as they say, it's available at fine bookstores everywhere. My guest next week was an All-American and a national champion playing for Bear Bryant at Alabama. He went on to join the Dallas Cowboys where he played in three Super Bowls, winning a Super Bowl ring, at Super Bowl VI, as the Cowboys defeated the Miami Dolphins. He's also a member of the Cowboys' Ring of Honor and the 1973 NFC Defensive Player of the Year. Tune in next time as Leroy Jordan joins me on the podcast. We'll be talking about Coach Bryant, Tom Landry, the Ice Bowl in Green Bay, one of the most famous games in NFL history, of course, and his years as roommate to not only Roger Staubach, but Dandy Don Meredith. I think we could get a heck of a podcast just out of Don Meredith stories, but we're going to talk about that and a heck of a lot more. So until we meet again, this is Ricky Cobb saying to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.